So actually, on that note of why the hell are you doing all that stuff, I think that's that's an important thing to reiterate, and I'm glad that you mentioned it as your kind of number one thing for hypertrophy is actually um, why are you doing what you're doing, and are you even following a hypertrophy program? Because uh, I think it's something that very often you ask someone why they're doing each individual thing, and um, someone will maybe be able to defend 60% of it, and then the remaining 40% is often just kind of, oh, because I... I think I should write or because it's in an ebook or, or an article yeah be. I, I had a chat with a guy at a party who was like Yusuf I want I want bigger legs like what should I do and I was like well what are you currently doing and he was like well I I do dumbbells I'm like okay do you do any leg exercises I'm like no okay so step one do leg exercises and then we'll have a chat about what you can do differently but it's, it, it's mind-blowing um you should have been getting enough sleep and not at the party. Oh, that's true. You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. He's like, that's so sweet. You'd be like, let's first thing, put your beard out, go home. You need more rest. He's like, uh, can I start tomorrow? You're like, right, you're going to start tomorrow, so you're going to need some sleep tonight. Get out of here. He's like, man, this sucks. That would have been your advice, yeah. Well, the, the example that you gave as well of um, sitting on a, a bus or a train and it's late and stressing out, that is always the thing that comes to mind is like um, the most irrational anxiety that comes up and yet it still happens and it just, it's like you're sat on a bus, you're late and then this comes up in, in your mind and you're just thinking like, brain, this is not a helpful thing to be bringing up right now. Like there's not literally nothing we can do about it. Like, so as you said, it... It should really not be an anxiety-inducing And now it's worse because then you'll start worrying about worrying because it's affecting your recovery and then your recovery will get affected even more and then that will cause you to worry even so more. So then your max recoverable volume goes down <laughs> and then you end up getting smaller. The, and the whole... that causes you to worry. Terrible, terrible uh, situation. Yeah, you're gonna, exactly. There's that feedback and then eventually you're homeless on the street. <laughs> <laughs> it's, always, it's all where it leads. Yeah, and it, you know, I think that that worry spiral actually can be uh, to your advantage because you start worrying about worrying. There's a certain uh, kind of uh, stream of logic you can you can get used to when when that occurs. You just start laughing about it because it's hilarious. You're like, look at how outdated all of these neural mechanisms are. I'm worrying about worrying too much. That's the like, this was completely ridiculous, right? Like, what an evolutionary carryover from when we're actually got you ready for combat with dangerous animals in the Pleistocene era. Like, yeah, exactly. This is ridiculous. Now I'm sitting in a bus. The chances of me getting stabbed by a crackhead are like super low, I hope. <laughs> I don't know where you where you boys uh, run around with what, what areas well, there. It's almost a daily thing for us at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> that's right. You're like, I'm usually the crackhead stabbing people, so I don't really worry <laughs> but, but about it. But we're not worried about it, so that's all that matters. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, and then so, you know, you can just relax and scroll on your phone and read articles and when the bus gets in, you're already relaxed and then you can go to sleep and enjoy your night's sleep as opposed to getting wound up for no reason so it's one of the situations that the realization that worry is rather pointless in almost all cases can just make you uh it can literally elevate you in a variety of ways particularly life enjoyment above so many people um you know, like uh, in a in a security line at the airport you know, I'm just rocking and rolling. I'm having oh, fun. Yeah. I'm scrolling on Facebook and people are like, oh, my God, my shoes. And 
shit, and oh, this is taking too long. Like, ah, you know. So let's say your flight's going to leave without you. Like, well, is there anything you could do in a security line at an airport? No, because if you start going nuts, they'll just arrest you and <laughs> finger you in the ass in the back or whatever that happens. See, you know, I'd, I'll tell you what. I'd like to say that, but I'm but with with a name like Yusuf, I'm always the guy getting fingered in the ass. You know what? I I literally sometimes I get to the airport early and I'm like suit like way too early. I'm like, let's have some fun. I haven't been touched by a human being in a while. (laughs) I'll be like, hey, you know, I tell you what, man, I'm fitting to blow something up. And they're like, you motherfucker. And they drag me in the back and I'm like, hit it, boys. And then 30 minutes later, they all come out feeling much dirtier than me. And they're like, get on your way, Dr. Isratel, you asshole. This is the third time you did this at the same airport. We're getting onto your shit. So now I can just come to the Philadelphia airport and be like, ah, you motherfucker. Go through. Shut up. Just go through the x-ray machine, motherfucker. We don't need to hear from you anymore. No one's going to frisk you anymore, Doc. No one is left over for that job. Yusuf's taking notes here, Mike, so I look forward to having to bail him out. <laughs> it's a difficult balance to strike because you, you've got to say something <laughs> sure. that's sufficiently suspicious to get searched, but not, not so sure. suspicious that you get kicked not off the like plane. Jail suspicious, right? You guys know the, you guys know the, the story, like the, the Grinch stole Christmas, that whole story? The, the what? The Grinch, the yeah, the Christmas story with the Grinch. You know, like the Grinch smile, like the super evil, creepy smile. As soon as they say that they're gonna frisk you, you just give them the Grinch <laughs> smile, and they're like, ah, actually, we're over understaffed. Just go ahead and go through. Like, if you look way too excited about getting the prospect of being searched, then it reduces the chances of going to jail, etc. Yeah, on a, on a bomb. <laughs> no, a bomb's not a good idea. Bomb I guess. Um, just, just go nuts. Just be like, ah, I'm late to my flight. Ah. And then, <laughs> That's it. So, so if you avoid the word bomb, you you don't hit your maximum recoverable suspiciousness. But you're kind for of... sure, you don't want to go over that because then you end up like getting shipped overseas and some kind of like tank, like underwater tanker prison with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone or your roommates. <laughs> Especially at the minute, yeah. For sure. <laughs> oh man. So um, we've got one more training question for you, Mike, and then we want sure. to ask you a little bit about nutrition as well for part two. So. Um, you also mentioned on this succinct summary of uh, hypertrophy that you can take some sort of targeted deloads during busy periods to resensitize to growth. Can you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, so any systems that you push into one direction, any adaptive systems, are going to develop adaptive resistance. Any, uh, almost every adaptive system in the human body has negative feedback loops which start to activate. And the more you push something, the harder it fights back. Adaptation, particularly muscle growth, is a physiologically expensive process that your body starts to consider kind of like a a luxury item after a while. And it's really not going to want to do it. So if you're training with high volumes and trying to really push hypertrophy pathways, which you should be, getting good growth, in my estimation of reading some literature and mostly working with clients – after about three or four months, definitely for beginners, it's less. Beginners, you can crank for five, six months and everything is fine. But then again, who cares about beginners? Because like you said, your advice to the guy at the party is like, well, start training your legs. And he's probably like, how? You're like, it doesn't matter how. Just go and then come back to me a couple weeks later. We can you can have something to work with. But for intermediates and advanced individuals, uh, after about three, three to five months of training for hypertrophy sequentially, you start to develop considerable adaptive resistance to the very process of hypertrophy. Rotating exercises doesn't work anymore. Messing with rep ranges doesn't work anymore. You're just not growing much. Ecologically, this is usually witnessed as a, um, a decrease in pumps. 
right? You just don't get the same kind of pumps you used to. Um, your soreness turns from like really peak. You, like, you guys know peak delayed onset muscle soreness where you're like, ow, everything hurts to touch. It starts to uh, not become that, but more diffuse kind of soreness where everything kind of hurts. Your joints kind of hurt. And you're like, eh, I don't know. Like I trained and they're like, oh yeah, did your squat workout beat you up? Like, did it get your legs sore? And you kind of think back to squat workouts you had months ago and you remember just this violent pump in your quads and crazy delayed onset muscle soreness in a couple of days after. And nowadays you're like, man, yeah, I guess it did beat me up, but you're like, my knees kind of hurt and my quads didn't really get a pump and everything feel kind of strung out. Like you're, you're training and training and training. And it's just nothing seems like it's happening. And a lot of times it comes with the psychology of, of just like, man, I just don't feel like anything is working anymore. I think then you've developed a considerable intramuscular adaptive resistance to growth. It's a good idea to back away. And you've probably accumulated quite a bit of fatigue too. And, and, and as biochemically, this is usually noticed as you know, anytime you train, you activate catabolic and anabolic mechanisms um, together. Usually, the anabolic ones predominate. They're activated more. Over several months of, of consistent training, even with deloads, over the several months of consistent hypertrophy training, you're going to start to see an either equivalent activation of catabolic and anabolic signaling post-workout or actually an increase in ana catabolic signaling over anabolic signaling. So the, uh, processes like AMP kinase are going to be more active than processes like mTOR. So then all of a sudden, you're basically literally spinning your wheels. And that's not really good. You don't train just to train. I mean, training is fun and all, but you train to grow. So what you can do is take about a month of low volume training, because low volumes and high intensities, heavy weights, sets of five, three, something like that, have been shown to conserve muscle very well in an isocaloric diet. So as long as you're not cutting weight, if you're doing low volumes, but heavy weights, you're probably not gonna lose any muscle. Now you are gonna get less pumped, so you're gonna look smaller, but uh, pumps and muscle are not the same thing, right? So that's transient hypertrophy. So you're gonna look smaller, but bear with it. Keep your strength training in, reduce the volume considerably, probably to about half the number of sets you usually do for your uh, for your actual hypertrophy work. And after about a month, you are going to be fresh and sensitive to hypertrophy again. You are going to come back and start with volumes that are close to your minimum effective volume, which will now be lowered because you're more sensitive. You, as it's been a month since you've trained uh, anything, right, uh, for hypertrophy, you'd be very sensitive to growth and you can crank out another three or four months of incrementally higher and higher volumes and maybe some metabolite training towards the end, kind of throwing a couple tricks from the bag. And then you're going to be in a position again at the end of that three or four months where your body's really just seen it all and it's got nothing new and the growth is going to be super hard. So then you need to reset the clock again by going back to a low volume phase. And that's kind of uh, – that's the periodization of hypertrophy training and it's called phase potentiation. One phase potentiates the next. So your low volume phase potentiates your growth in the high volume phases up afterwards because uh, that those volume phases uh, are now your body's more sensitive to growth from that low volume phase. So if you structure your training in that way, you can kind of ensure that you're never really spinning your wheels. And when you start spinning your wheels, you're doing something about it to combat the effects. I suppose it's almost borrowing some principles from um, how a powerlifting program would be arranged in the sense that volume is always being managed and undulated to potentiate the next phase or to manage the recovery when it exceeds. So typically after an intensification comp competition, a lot of powerlifters would go through a recovery phase where movements change, volume drops right down before moving back into accumulation to sort of always keep the, the potential for strength gain and I suppose size gain there. But you, um, you maybe hear, hear of it less during maybe a bodybuilding specific split that be fair? Yeah, you know, I think I think bodybuilders haven't thought about this stuff yet to a big extent, um, and I think they just do it naturally. You know, some guys will um, when the high rep um, 
stuff doesn't work anymore and give them pumps, they kind of get frustrated. And I think a lot of guys, even before they get frustrated, they intuitively start missing going heavy. So they'll go through a phase where they just go heavy, like sets of five, stuff like that. And because they're going heavy, they get really tired from going heavy and they don't add any extra volume. So they kind of automatically do a low volume phase. And then when it's time to come dieting for a show, they start to ramp up the volume again and go slightly lighter on the weights and get good pumps again. And they've just by accident resensitized themselves. What I'm saying is what people are doing by accident, we should formalize and do on purpose. You know, there's some similar story with deloading. A lot of people in powerlifting and weightlifting and, and bodybuilding, they don't really know about formal deloading, but when they get beat up, they'll take a couple of easy days or an easy week or they'll take a week off. What the science of periodization tells us is that we should have some Definitely some auto-regulation like that where if we feel bad, we should take uh, time away or time off or for a low-volume phase. But also that should be to some extent programmed so we can do it preemptively and not have to worry about having gone too far for too long. Cool. Sorry, me and Johnny <laughs> both pointing at each other for we the both next question. The other one was going to speak. <laughs> <laughs> right on. So we, we've had one person that's noticed that you tend to advise lower protein than other coaches and they've asked us to uh to ask why <laughs> for real is that a joke no, no they said deadly serious um I, I think what what they said was uh with with other coaches that i've been with i've been used to eating two to three grams per kilogram of protein and uh after going through the, the renaissance periodization approach it seems like mike advises much lower protein than that in a calorie deficit and i'm curious why I think we could maybe just rephrase it just because we are asking somebody else's question, I suppose. <laughs> it's relating to the, the Renaissance periodization auto templates. And I think in their, in their individual experience, they had a lower protein recommendation than they specifically recommend. So moving more generally, Mike, onto nutrition, how would you go about structuring, structuring macronutrients? And do you personally feel like this person is right or are they misinformed? They're completely right. and In fact, so right. We are canning the RP diet templates. That's right. You heard it first. We're taking them off the market. They're oh so God. terrible. One giant flaw exposed. We're done. <laughs> RP is done. We're shutting down the company. It's been fun. Thank you for all our followers. We'll give you a $5 coupon to McDonald's. We're shutting down the Facebook group. See you later. Oh, man. Well, oh, we're really sorry to be there. The, the no worries, man. Sit. You guys spoke truth to power, and I know when my time is up. So, no, but on a serious note... She has to know she's single-handedly a... responsible for that now. I, I, <laughs> That's I, I right. hope Downfall. whoever asked that question that you're feeling really bad Terrible. about yourself now. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, well, you know, I'm just going to fade away into the darkness now. Goodbye, world. <laughs> um, you're like, where's Dr. Isdall? I haven't heard any more podcasts. So he's like, yeah, man, he did that one, and then he's just out. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, okay, so... Um, you know, there are some distinct advantages to eating more protein than we prescribe at Renaissance. And at Renaissance, we're at right about two grams per kilo. Uh, well, so we're not very far off. <laughs> um, to be completely honest, I literally have no idea. Well, I'll tell you, I actually do have an idea. So at, at RP, our templates give you kind of um, – uh, recommendation per meal for how much lean meat to consume, like lean protein sources, which could be powders, vegan options, or meats. And then we have another column for kind of green veggies, and we have another column for healthy carbs, which include fruits and grains and all that stuff. And then one for healthy fats, like, you know, um, nut butter, olive oil, things like that. So when you add up only the protein grams in the lean meat column, 
you come up with something like 1.8 or 1.6 grams per kilo of protein or per kilo per day, and you think, oh, yeah, that's really low. But the thing is, we designed the template in such a way as to count ancillary macronutrients. So when you consume peanut butter, that has a shitload of protein in it. Almost all grains have some protein in it. When you're consuming 400 grams of carbohydrate a day, and uh, Alex Viata, I'm sure you guys are familiar with who that is, has pointed this out on numerous occasions. Mm -hmm. If you don't count your ancillaries at all, you end up with ungodly amounts of protein. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so if you only Even count your like actual protein. And stuff. Totally. Now, that's not the same quality, so uh, you can't count all of it because all of it doesn't get digested and absorbed properly, but you can count some of it. It's not completely useless, and a lot of times your protein sources are going to be complementary to begin with. Like, yeah, you know, if you have some rice and your beans in your diet, neither one is a very good protein, but combined they have excellent protein source. Um, so all, all of that taken together, the average food consumed on uh, one of our templates yields over – two grams per kilo of protein per day and factoring out the lower quality proteins it really we, we made it kind of a shotgun approach to about two grams per kilo per day right or, or just over one gram of protein per pound or body weight per day so that, but that's what it is right but if you look at it just the protein stuff you go oh, shit that's not enough right um and that just doesn't uh, factor in the ancillary nutrients so on that note i could speak more generally I think there's a, some good reasons to have more protein than that. We have another specialty product at Renaissance called the Hunger Templates or the, the Anti-Hunger Templates. And they're designed to really uh, fight hunger a ton, knowingly trading off a little bit of performance in the gym. And they're loaded with way more protein than that. That's like three uh, grams per kilo because protein is known to be uh, a very, very anti-hunger nutrient. It's, it's, uh, so it reduces hunger more than carbohydrates or, or fats per calorie. So I think a lot of diet prep coaches or for fat loss plans will give you more protein so you're not as hungry. The good news is that it reduces hunger. The bad news is that you could be eating more fats to support hormonal systems better with those calories. Or you could be eating more carbohydrates, staying fuller, being bigger, having better recovery, having better workouts, and being you know, happier that you get more carbohydrates, your brain works better, etc. So there's definitely some fine lines there. And I think personal preference and how you respond to those macronutrients has to come in at some point. But what I would say is at no point in time did I ever recommend any amount of protein that I think is just way below. I mean, you know, I, do you guys, are you guys familiar with Menno Henselman's? Do you guys know who that is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like so, you know, Menno would be one of those guys that in the evidence-based community is on the very low end of protein prescription. I'm not that guy. So, you know, if this individual thinks I'm on the low end, she should see some of Meadows' work. And as an individual, I highly respect and I think makes a lot of good points. Um, I think that uh, really, to be completely honest, I think that if you're within two grams or per, per kilo, like even 1.6, 1.8, you're getting more than enough protein for all of your physiological needs. And then the rest is more or less for psychological purposes. Um, so and, I suppose and I really... think with ancillary protein, it's just really not a concern. Really what you're doing is kind of ring fencing off an amount within the total protein recommendation that's coming from whole sources of, of meat, eggs, fish, etc. Correct? For sure. Yeah. For sure. Because I think take the, the sort of the IFYM nutrition approach to its nth degree, you end up getting all your protein from, you know, Pop-Tarts and gelatin and stuff like that. You know, so that, <laughs> that's maybe not the best situation for, you know, managing your recovery, managing your response to stimulus and stuff like that for sure yeah so our, our basic the core there is going to be most of the protein comes from high quality sources but we also count the other stuff to some extent we can't just not count it because that's calories you know mm. like 
Uh, and then because if you if you put uh, stuff into my fitness pal and it counts like, oh, you know, I'm supposed to be eating uh, you know, it's only 160 grams of protein a day. Oh, no, I'm going to wither. And you put it in my fitness pal and it's 250 and you're like, oh, shit. OK, I guess I was wrong. Right. So we got to we got to uh, because they're templates, they're just average shots uh, at, at a pretty good outcome. And they're going to have some margin of error depending on what kind of foods you choose. But on average, for average kind of bodybuilding foods, uh, they work really well. And I think they provide more than enough protein uh, from certainly from any of the research we've seen and, and probably from practical experience as well. I think that makes a lot of sense with the ring fencing approach. And um, we often joke about like setting a challenge, how to make IIFYM not work at all. And we're thinking like, okay, so you, you, you wake up, you eat a tub of margarine, then at 4 p.m. you eat um, 200 grams of protein, all from Black Widow Venom. And then at 10 p.m., yeah, <laughs> by 10 p.m., if you're still alive, you, you just um, have a bunch of syrup. And then go to bed. And uh, I was thinking sugar cubes because I don't want to feel something solid in my mouth. You know? uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but hey, syrup's great. It's really quick. Mm. Maximize the hypertrophy with the syrup, I suppose. We can digest faster. Speaking of hypertrophy, yep. actually, Mike, <laughs> would be <laughs> how do you go about, or how would you go about um, gauging calories and macronutrients for someone who is in keeping with the examples we've used so far, training for hypertrophy? Well, you know, you got to make sure uh, it depends on the phase they're in. If they're in a, a phase in which they're gaining weight, which is the most obvious example, they want to gain muscle. You have to make sure they're gaining weight. So the initial calorie estimates are probably based on tables and formulas like the Harris-Benedict equation. And you use that first. Actually, I was teaching this in class today. Um, ironic. So, uh, you know, initially you do that and then you track body weight. And you measure body weight anywhere between you know two and three times a week for most people. If you're really really uh, psychotic, you can measure once a day, um, and you start to track your body weight. You track your body weight averages. It's really good to graph it too, because from a graph, you can start to see how close to the line of best fit you are. And you aim for between a quarter of a percent to a percent of your body weight gained per week. So for most individuals, that usually a uh, the average is about half a kilo per week, uh, in my recommendation for about, uh, anywhere from eight to 16 weeks, you gain half a kilo per week. And then some of that's going to be muscle. Some is going to be fat. And after that, you probably do a maintenance phase where you maintain for a while and, uh, let the gains kind of solidify and a uh, great time to do one of those resensitization phases for a low volume lifting for hypertrophy. And then you can go into a, what, you know, we'd call a fat loss phase or a cutting phase, in which you go about a percent per week of uh, uh, your body weight and reduce the fat that you've gained from that hypertrophy phase. And then you're back to, you know, being up maybe by two kilos of muscle over a six month period. And then you repeat the process, uh, you know, add infinitum until you're as big as you want. And then you're happy for the first time in your life. You have enough <laughs> muscle to be happy. You put on a birthday hat, you get a cake. And there's no one around. It's not even your birthday. You smile, you eat the cake and all is well. <laughs> Finally, you've you've got there. You've you've, you've achieved swole. You've done and, it. Um, done it. Speaking That's of it. which, uh, it was Bryce Lewis's birthday uh, couple of, <laughs> last week, and uh, if you haven't already, Mike, take a look at his Facebook feed. There was a photo of him in a party hat in a fully pink room, holding a wand or a candy cane thing, topless, uh, looking really happy. And I think that, that, that must have been his day. He, he must have achieved that. <laughs> That's there it is. Goal. He's strong enough. <laughs> yeah. In in fact, we may even put it in. The I think it'll be worth worth doing. We we <laughs> put it in the show notes. We were asking about it the other day because we were worried that 
that was just an impromptu thing that he'd arranged himself. There's a lot of pink. <laughs> Standard breakfast. <laughs> He's wearing a hat, the pink pink wand. It's really, really funny. <laughs> like Bryce, listen, we we like you, man. And we just, but, everything but, going okay? <laughs> <laughs> Who is the president? <laughs> what day is it? <laughs> so, Mike, the 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 final question we had for you because we uh, and it's it's something that comes from the fact that um, you have a really well-rounded approach to all of this, and I I love that. And um, although you were kind of joking, you said like if you're if you're psychotic and you want to weigh yourself every day, then that's what you would do. But it was a video a while ago that you um, someone asked you about binges and resetting some of the kind of food neuroses that you can pick up from excessive tracking. And I thought your approach to that was fantastic. I've not heard someone um, describe an approach like that in the past. Can you just briefly explain it? And then we'll obviously link to the video as well. Sure. Like you mean the, the, the total diet reset sort of yeah. thing? Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's really reserved. Um, you can do miniature versions of it every now and again, but if that's, this is really reserved for individuals who are probably as close as possible to diagnosable eating disorder but haven't yet got there. So we would classify this as disordered eating but not an eating disorder. So there's a spectrum of relationships of food. Um, and, you know, at the left end of the spectrum would be uh, you're, you have no idea what an eating disorder is. You eat because you're hungry because you like food. You, there's no hang-ups at all. Um, and all we go to the right – there's a spectrum of increasing patterns of disordered eating where um, your relationships to food get incrementally worse, less adaptive, more psychotic, more neurotic until you pass a certain threshold where according to, you know, for example, in the States here, the American Psychological Association, and we have like a diagnostical and statistical manual, which categorizes what qualifies you for an actual eating disorder, right? For actual diagnosis. But until you get to that diagnosis, you know, uh, the treatment options are fairly limited. You can see a psychologist, psychiatrist, but they're mostly trained to deal with people who actually have an eating disorder, formal, which is really, really bad news. And if you're in that boat, please recognize it and go see an actual trained professional. Uh, all of psychology or psychiatry deal with that. But if you're maybe midway or sort of to the right of that curve, you're on that spectrum where you're, you're dealing with some disordered eating, let's say you've been dieting for six months for a bodybuilding show, and every single thing you think about is food and you are tracking your food and weighing yourself and you're looking in the mirror all the time and you start to become obsessed with food and when the bodybuilding show is over you want to gain weight but you want to do it the right way so you're still tracking and people are like ice cream do you want ice cream and you look at your abs and you go fuck do i do i want ice cream but mm -hmm. i want these abs you start to go insane and the very idea of dieting starts to bring you an incredible amount of anxiety you are very much attached to eating super clean food all the time, attached to tracking, and the entire process is weighing down on you. It's heavier and heavier every day. So what is a way that you can reset your relationship with food so that it's calmer, more rational, and that you can actually deal with things and not feel overburdened by all this tracking? Well, one way is if you've really had enough, you legitimately stop weighing yourself at all. You can look in the mirror at your face only. I'm just kidding. You can look at your body too, but it's not going to be doing anything super cool during that time. So it's probably a good idea to let, look in the mirror less. Uh, you know, and you, and you guys know what I mean by that. I don't mean like don't, like don't look in the mirror when you're brushing your teeth in the morning. I mean don't inspect your physique for how you think you're looking, like yeah. something we all do, right? So stay away from that a bit more and eat literally whatever you want whenever you want it because if you're burned out on dieting, 
this kind of thing is going to burn you out on not dieting, which is exactly what we want, right? right? Because we want to come back to dieting and do it properly. So for a couple of weeks, you're going to eat whatever the hell you want until you can look at yourself in the mirror and honestly, and don't bullshit yourself because we're all really good at bullshitting ourselves. After one meal, a lot of us are going to be like, oh, that was good enough. I feel great. I'm back to dieting. No, you're lying. <laughs> don't bullshit yourself. Look in the mirror and, and go, I am legitimately have had enough of eating what I want. I no longer really have a need to eat what I want. Like, So if you tell someone like who's really in a bad dieting state, who's burned out on dieting and who's just super, super anxious about stuff, if you tell them, hey, okay, I give you this magic pill, you can look so stripped up lean all the time and you can eat whatever you want how much you know would you pay me for this pill someone who's in a really good place with dieting is like i wouldn't pay you much for that pill because i can diet it's not a big deal like i can eat what i have to eat mm. i'm not addicted to the idea of eating all the time but if you're in that situation where you're like oh my god i'll cut my arm off take my arm i need that pill because i'd love to be able to eat food right i'd love to be able to eat food and not worry about anything well you got to get to that point in your life before you can move on to the next. So for whatever, whether, whether it takes a week, which is unlikely, or it takes three months, which is probably also unlikely, it's probably gonna be weeks to months of you eating when you want, what you want, how you want. And all of your fears of what that's gonna do to your body are gonna be right there. And the thing is, you're gonna gain a little bit of weight, you're gonna gain a little bit of fat, but it's nothing we can't reverse with like two or three weeks of dieting, so it's super not a big deal. After you are done eating junk food and you can literally look yourself in the mirror and you guys know like we've all been on that part where uh, maybe are in a hypertrophy phase or something where someone's like, hey, you want to catch a cheat meal tonight? What do you want? And you're like, honestly, I don't want to go out. I don't want a cheat meal. McDonald's sounds like, stupid to me. It sounds gross. It sounds disgusting and not like theoretically gross. Like I literally just don't want to eat it. I actually want chicken and broccoli. You guys ever been at that point when yeah, you're like totally done with gaining weight? That's the point you want to be at. And as soon as you're at that point, you can start to clean up your diet a bit. You can still have junk anytime you want. Totally cool. But keep your meals fundamentally healthy. Some good protein sources, right? Some good carbohydrates, good healthy fats. Go back to eating mostly normally and have some treats every now and again. After you're good with that and you're totally okay and eating normally well is a habit for you, you can start to kind of formalize your portions of food to some extent. Like, okay, in the morning I have one shake, including this, two apples and a sandwich for lunch, blah, blah. Get to the point where you're tracking your food intake again, but not prescriptively. You're just taking notes of it. So now this tracking idea of measuring things and weighing them or just eyeballing them is separated entirely from prescriptive things, right? You're not trying to hit anything. You're just paying attention to what you're eating. So at the end of that several month phase or, you know, month or so, you're going to be totally cool with writing down food items without putting value judgments on them. Like, well, this is just what I ate and it's not good or bad. It's just what happened. Once you're there, then you already are eating mostly healthy foods, you're already tracking your food intake, and your meals are fundamentally good, then you can start a diet again of one that tells you, hey, let's look at your macros, look at your calories, uh, and put some caps on them and some recommendations. By then, you have jettisoned most of the anxiety you've had about the stuff because you know someone says, oh, don't you just want to eat the whole kitchen sink and stop this dieting bullshit? You're like, yeah, I did that. Shit is old. You know, like I got it all out, and you really can get it all out. It really is how it works. <laughs> so you know, I think relative periods like this are good for everyone. But every now and again, if you get really hung up on the stuff, you need a serious diet reset with all of those phases. The good thing is for most bodybuilders, especially male bodybuilders. 
a massing phase or a bulking phase takes care of that for us, right? After you put on a bunch of weight in a bulking phase, you don't want to, you want to diet, you know? Yeah. People are like, don't you just want to eat pizza? You're like, get that shit out of my face. Like, I want to eat clean. I feel like shit when I eat bad. You know, it's never been, you eat McDonald's and you're literally like, are, are like breathing heavy afterwards. You're like, oh my God, like what's in me, <laughs> right? But, but yeah. a lot of females get into this problem. Because what do they do? They lose weight for a competition. They lose fat. They compete or they just do a fat loss phase and just look good. And then what do they do? They try not to gain weight because being small, being small, being small, I got to be small. And they never have that release. So if you've done three or four of those no release cycles on end, a couple of years later, you may be very, very damaged. And it might be a really good idea to go through a full diet reset. Here's the thing. Last thing I got to say to some women particularly and some men who think oh my god this guy's crazy a full diet reset fuck him i hope he goes to the airport next time and gets you know you know done up like he likes because he's insane <laughs> by the security um there's no who in their right mind would ever abandon their diet for like weeks if you in your heart of hearts find that to be insane you can just continue on with dieting right you're not ready but when you literally are measuring out broccoli and you start to cry, you're ready. You're ready to give it all up. And when you're ready to give it all up, the good news is there's two types of giving it all up. You give it all up and you never come back to the sport, right? You're just like, fuck that, I used to diet, but now I just don't give a shit. Or there's a strategic giving it all up. You know you're gonna come back, enjoy your time relaxing with food. It's all empowering you to be better later. So when you're ready to give it all up, when you're crying, when you're cutting up broccoli or something, um, then you know you're ready for this kind of diet refeed. And we've had uh, our one of our coaches, Dr. Melissa Davis, she's uh, administered this diet refeed to several of her clients and with great success so far. And she actually has empirical data now to show how they've started to lose weight again. Because you know a lot of individuals, they're gonna they try to cut. They go insane, they start binging. They try to cut, they start binging. They try to cut, they start binging. They're never actually cutting. They're getting all of the insanity of a cutting phase or a fat loss phase, but none of the results because they keep binging too often. If you do it, it's because of food issues, right? And uh, once they do a full diet reset, a lot of them just come back and it's like nothing ever happened. Awesome three-month diet, no problem. And as soon as they're done with that diet, we tell them to relax, enjoy maintenance phase, eat more tasty foods so they can psychologically come back. Because the thing is, just like with physiology, psychology, you need breaks, you need resets. There are negative feedback loops. You can't grind all the time. Yeah, this is this is what I love about the approach, really, because it's you know it's the fourth stage. It's all laid out so that, as you said, if somebody is used to kind of vacillating between the extremes all the time, and they've got a very much a, a extreme mindset towards things, then the idea of taking two weeks of just YOLO eating is the ultimate leap of faith and is, is pretty terrifying. So I guess, as you said, step one is making sure that the pain of what you're doing is so great that actually you're willing to do anything um, yeah. and knowing that there's a light at the end of the tunnel so that it's not just a, an uncontrolled phase of eating and then with no real direction at the end. And also, absolutely. Start... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, if people just think like, "Oh, I'm just going to start eating like shit. I'm just going to balloon up to 300 pounds, and no one's going to be able to save me." Like, you know, uh, that's bullshit. Uh, Oreos get old. I promise. Everything gets old. And, and, and some of the people that literally listen to this right now and can't believe me, like, "Oh no, trust me, trust me. I can eat all the Oreos in the world." <laughs> no, you can't. Fuck off. You can't because I've seen it shit, shit before. You 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 try and you say, "Okay, eat, you know, when you're balls deep in a cutting phase, you think you can eat everything in the world, but when you're not balls deep in 
and cutting phase anymore after two weeks of just eating fuck all. First of all, you literally run out of diversity of foods that you can eat. Now, you can get really creative, but you're like, okay, Taco Bell again, KFC again. And, and if you eat enough junk food over the course of weeks and you're especially a healthy person, and by the way, our recommendation this time is to continue to train hard. So you'll gain some muscle doing this too because you'll be really or hypercaloric. But you know, if you continue to eat like junk food, you're going to get sick of it. I promise everyone gets sick of it, especially if you're training hard. At, 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 for about a month for some people, for some two, for some just several weeks, you're going to be like, oh my God, I am ready to start eating healthy again. And it's going to come with no psychological pain whatsoever. Because like if, if you were it really balls deep in diet fatigue, someone was like, okay, you can have all the food you want, but it's got to be healthy. You, you're kind of going to be like, fuck, that's going to be so hard, right? I want junk. But after two or three weeks of junk, you're usually like, oh my God, I can't wait to start eating healthy. And can you imagine? That's already evidence of it working. You just told yourself, I can't wait to eat healthy. Holy shit, you're halfway healed, right? After a couple of months, you, you'll say, I can't wait to track my food. And then, geez, you're ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. It loses its appeal after, after some time. There's only For one sure. example of someone who I think was was just being flagrantly um, <laughs> deliberate at the end of a contest. You might have seen this video, a guy called Fat Nick. Um, I'll I'll include the uh, the link in the show notes, but post-contest, he just goes to every fast food place that he can and just deliberately tries to eat as much as he can. And he ended up gaining sort of 35 pounds, I think. But really, that's an exception because it looked like he was trying to say, you know, screw you to the diet uh, <laughs> rather than actually eating for enjoyment. But again, Jeez. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty frightening, but that's, uh, that, that's how not to do it. But yeah, what, what you said as well, I think it's, it's huge. This, this kind of, um, what, what you, you know, the, the swinging between binges, getting all of the insanity of dieting, but with none of the, the gain. And it's becoming so common that I wonder whether they're going to have to redefine some of the criteria in the DSM because it's no longer, um, eating disorder, typical 20 year old female doing excess cardio and wasting away. I think uh, there's probably a whole swathe of people that are maybe because they don't fit obvious criteria, like losing 15% of their body weight or, um, you know, cause they're still, as Eric Helms put it, they're just starving themselves, but, um, maintaining muscles. So they're staying within a normal body weight range and maybe these things aren't being picked up. So I wonder what the future will hold for, uh, for psychiatry. Yeah, agreed. You know, the, what the one reason for psychiatrists to try to avoid such a diagnosis because it's not medically relevant in the sense of it's not endangering your life. Because if you weigh 185 pounds, you're not going to die of starvation no matter how lean you are. But the psychological effects are still very pronounced and probably should consider um, some qualifications. But I mean, even now, you know, disordered eating has been discussed and is a formal concept. So you don't have to have an eating disorder to have disordered eating. And a lot of individuals uh, do have disordered eating patterns and it's something that they should bring to their own attention. And I'm not one of those individuals that says, oh, everyone needs to stop counting everything and just live a normal life. Like, no, you can eat, eat you know, if you're dieting hard enough, if you're a competitive bodybuilder, you will have to develop, almost everyone will develop some disordered eating patterns at some point. You have to understand what your cutoff is, what is too much insanity for you and have ways to come back from that. Because if you don't, you could be in a really bad place and eventually one of two things happen. One, you spend five years dieting and you're miserable and you look back in five years and you go, fuck, that's five years of my life, it sucked. Or two, you fall off the wagon and stop bodybuilding and start writing articles about how everyone should love their bodies and bodybuilding is fucking terrible and should be made illegal. Both of those suck. So just to avoid those two sucky things, you got to keep tabs on your own psychological health. And I'm not saying that from like a, people say, oh, psychological health, fuck that. Like you're a pussy. Like fine, totally. Um, 
a, you know, their psychological health so that you can continue to be the machine that you need to be. You are human. I think people you need to that attend say to that. like, oh, you're a pussy if you're worrying about psychological health probably have the most psychological problems. So, um, yeah. I thought you were going to say the most psychological health. Those people are great. They've got it all. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, so it's, I guess recognizing the symptoms early um, and seeing that it's a continuum and yep. just, just like with maximum recoverable volume, seeing that if the lag indicators are kicking in, then maybe you need to pull back a little bit. Yep, maybe you need to, you know, unless your show's in two weeks and then grind it, right? But if your show's in eight months and you're already feeling fucked up, you're doing something wrong. Cool. Mike, it's been great speaking to you. And uh, we don't want to take up too much more of your time. But just before we let you go and get searched at an airport, can you let us know how we can find out more about you? Well, you know, I'm an international man of mystery. This is all you're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm neither international nor a man of mystery. It turns out. So, um, I guess I, I am, I am, I am not, I am nominally international. I did uh, originate from Russia. So that's kind of cool. Does that make me exotic? How interesting am I on the scale of most interesting man in the world? What do you guys say? I'd say you are the most interesting man in the world. Oh, ten. Right. Ten. I can, ten. Ten. I, 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 I can tell when there's smoke being blown up my ass. Unbelievable. <laughs> I usually reserve that for the back room at the uh, Transportation Security Administration. But, uh, <laughs> so I'm like, well, boys, what's it going to be today? They're like, you sick pervert. Get out of here. <laughs> you know all of our tools already. This is fucked up. Um, anyway, you can catch me in a couple places. Uh, first of all, renaissanceperiodization.com. We've got all kinds of cool books, articles, a blog. Um, and we are building a membership site. And it is going to be amazing. I will be on there all the time doing webinars all the time, answering questions all the time. We're going to have all kinds of cool stuff. More announcements about that to come. RenaissancePeriodization.com. Check it out. At RP Strength on Instagram, we train a lot of people that look very nice and they're very nice to look at. So go on the Instagram and smile for once. And, or, you know, do whatever creepy pervert face you guys have. It's mm -hmm. maybe not a smile. How presumptive of me. And Pretty then, good. um, <laughs> nice. And then, uh, at RP Dr. Mike on Instagram, mostly pictures of food. My boring life, half-naked pictures of me that are quote-unquote bodybuilding-related. And then um, Facebook, Mike Isertel on Facebook. That's where most of the action is. Um, I answer questions, troll posts, all that good stuff. Come, have fun. It'll be great. Um, lastly, you can find me in the back room of the Transportation Security Administration at your local airport awaiting <laughs> patiently for the attention I so goddamn well deserve. <laughs> absolutely fantastic mike it has been a pleasure we'll stick all of those links in the show notes on the website and the photo of bryce and the photo of bryce that's that's, that's probably going to be the, a featured the... photo and i think bryce is excellent going to why, why am i on the podcast cover photo someone scrolling through the uh, through the internet links like why is the tsa link here this is so strange we'll just send loads of traffic to it facebook excellent. ads everything cool <laughs> All right, Mike, it's been great, and uh, we will speak to you soon. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Pleasure. Bye-bye.